12, verses 1 to 14. Matthew 12, verses 1 to 14. If I'm really, really good, Santa is going to bring me an iPad next Christmas. <laughs> Daddy, if I'm really, really good, can I have the car Friday night? My teacher says we've been bad, and she's going to take away our, resource, our recess unless we're really, really good from now until lunchtime. My wife's really mad at me, so I better be really, really good for a while. There's communion this morning, isn't there? Have I been really, really good this past week? Is that the way life works? If we're good, we might get what we want. If we're good, we might get out of being punished. If we're good, God might be happy with us. Well, these were the assumptions that many of the Jewish people had around the time of Jesus. And these Jews knew that they had not been good. That's why God had left them years before and sent them into exile. And to Jesus' day, they continued to languish under God's punishment, suffering under the harsh rule of Roman oppressors, who were the last in a long series of oppressors. These were desperate times, and desperate times call for desperate measures. And so the number one question on the minds of many of God's people at the time of Jesus were, what does it take to be really, really good? What do we have to do so that God will forgive our sins and and save us from the Romans and bless us again? This question was the talk of the nation. It was uh, the subject that many of the hottest books were on. Call-in, talk show, radio programs were debating the question. Uh, synagogue foyers and, and small group Torah studies were abuzz with conversation on this topic. The leading voice in this national conversation were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the largest and most influential religious party within Judaism. You might say they were the evangelicals of the first century. Not part of the elite, but having strong grassroots influence. Conservative, Bible-believing, patriotic, passionate about their faith and about their country. The Pharisees desperately wanted to see their nation set free from Rome to flourish again as one nation under God. Given how serious the Pharisees were about Scripture, they figured that the best way to get God to redeem His people again was for the people to shape up and follow God's commands as recorded in Scripture. If everyone kept God's rules perfectly, then surely God would be pleased with his people. The Bible word for this is holiness. When we're morally pure and perfect before God, and the Pharisees stressed holiness. Of course, this was easier said than done. The Pharisees' problem was, how do you get the poor, ignorant, unwashed masses to live up to God's perfect, wonderful, holy standard? This issue challenged them, it it drove them, it plagued them. And then along comes this troublesome fellow Jesus. An uneducated carpenter turned cult leader with his ignorant band of rabble who follow him around. Not only is Jesus a danger because his views of holiness are questionable, he's hanging around with the unwashed masses and he's partying when he should be fasting. But Jesus is all the more dangerous because he's teaching his views to others and his influence is growing. 
The poor riffraff are flocking to Jesus. They hang on his every word. And with Jesus around, how are these people ever going to get motivated to live holy lives so that God, their Savior, could return and save his people? This is what the Pharisees are concerned about. And this was the tension that was building between Jesus and the Pharisees. And it came to a head over the issue of Sabbath. It should have been no surprise that Sabbath would be a major bone of contention. The Sabbath was and is super important for the Jews. It's, one, for one thing, one of the, God's top ten commandments. For another, the Sabbath was key to the Jewish identity. It was one of the main traits that set them off as God's people. Jews refrained from work on Saturdays, unlike godless Gentiles and Romans. That's a big part of what made them Jews. And so important was Sabbath keeping at that time to Jewish religion that some rabbis taught that if all Jews would just keep the Sabbath perfectly and not do any work for two consecutive Saturdays, God would come immediately to redeem his people and bring in his kingdom. But what exactly is work? You've got to know that if you're going to keep the Sabbath properly. And to answer that question and to ensure that some poor Jew didn't inadvertently break the Sabbath, the rabbis came up with literally thousands of regulations, which they categorized under 39 types of work which were forbidden on the Sabbath. Well, one Sabbath, Jesus' followers were hungry and they were caught by the Pharisees picking and eating heads of grain in a grain field. Now, normally this was okay. The the Old Testament allowed you to walk across your neighbor's field, and if you were hungry, you could pick whatever you could eat along the way. You just couldn't bring in a sickle and harvest his crop. (laughs) But not on the Sabbath. At least that's what the Pharisees claimed. Among their 39 categories of work that was forbidden on the Sabbath were reaping, threshing, winnowing, and preparing a meal. And the disciples were doing all four of these kinds of work. And so the Pharisees called Jesus on this because as a rabbi, Jesus was responsible for his disciples' behavior. Look what your disciples, or look, your disciples are doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. The Pharisees accused Jesus. Well, Jesus isn't at least, or in the least, intimidated by these teachers. Rather, he courageously takes them on and he enters into a theological discussion with them. And he argues his case based on three different scriptures. One from Old Testament history, one from Old Testament law, and one from Old Testament prophecy. In other words, he covers his bases like a good rabbi would. And by the time the dust has settled in this confrontation, we gain a greater greater appreciation for who Jesus is and for what it means to be holy. So let's take a closer look. Let's start by noticing how Jesus does not respond to the Pharisees. I don't know about you, but I would expect Jesus to say to the Pharisees, come on, guys, lighten up. They're not really working on the Sabbath. They're just eating a little grain as they walk through a field. You guys are too cotton-picking strict. Is anyone with me here? You know, I think this is our first reaction because we are so lax about the Sabbath. We keep it loosely if we keep it at all. But notice, Jesus never denies that his disciples are in fact working on the Sabbath. 
And Jesus never suggests that his followers should be less serious about being holy or less diligent about obeying God's commands than the Pharisees were. In fact, Jesus says earlier in Matthew 5, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus does instead is to help his followers to understand God's commands properly so that we can keep them properly. In other words, Jesus doesn't criticize the Pharisees because they were too concerned about holiness. Rather, he criticizes them for being mistaken about what true holiness is. Maybe this is a good time to go back and remember what happened in Matthew's gospel immediately before this story. We looked at it two weeks ago. Elfie alluded to it. Jesus had just given his wonderful invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and, and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let me reiterate something I said two weeks ago. When Jesus says, come to me and take my yoke, Jesus is putting himself in direct competition with every form of religion. And particularly in his own day with the Jewish religion, presided over by the teachers of the law, the religious experts, the wise, the learned, who exhorted their followers to take up the yoke of Torah. This involved all of these rules, putting a fence around God's law by adding extra rules so that if, if you kept those rules, you'd be sure you didn't even come close to breaking God's rules. Jesus condemns these teachers later in Matthew saying that they're just tying up heavy burdens for the common people to carry and they're not lifting a finger to help them carry them. Jesus offers a different yoke, an easy yoke, a light burden. Jesus promises rest. Interesting, Jesus offers us rest and then in the very next story in Matthew, it's about the Sabbath the day of rest and how to keep the Sabbath so that instead of a burden, it's a refreshment. Again, Jesus isn't diminishing God's law here or saying it's any less important. Rather, Jesus is teaching us how to understand and how to obey God's laws properly as God intended them. All right, so back to our story and the three scriptures Jesus argues from. First, Jesus asks the Pharisees, haven't you read about that time? It's in uh, the book of 1 Samuel when David was on the run from King Saul who, who was out to get him. David was hunted. David was hungry and so were his companions. And in compassion on them, Jesus at the, the, the tabernacle where God's presence was took and gave them the holy bread from the tabernacle which was against God's law for anyone to eat except for the priests. And they weren't priests. Jesus' point seems to be twofold in raising this story. First, David, who was Israel's greatest, most godly king, knew that while obeying God's law is important, human need, saving life, is the true spirit of that law. And so it takes precedence over the letter of the law. Second, Jesus is inviting the Pharisees and us to see him in close connection with David. 
After all, Matthew's already told us at the beginning of his gospel that Jesus is the son of David, right? Think about David's situation in the story that Jesus tells, if you're familiar with that story. Both David and Jesus had been anointed king of Israel by God, and yet neither of them had yet received the throne. Instead, they were both experiencing opposition from Israel's official leadership. Also, David and Jesus were both on the move when, when the incidents regarding lawbreaking occurred. Also, David and Jesus uh, both provided food for their hungry companions who were with them. And finally, both David and Jesus broke the law, or so it seemed, because people were more important. Jesus tells the Pharisees this story about David because he's inviting them and us to see him as the long-expected greater son of Jesus, the Messiah. Here the Pharisees are trying to get everyone to keep the Sabbath so that God can send his Messiah to rescue his people, and they don't even realize that the Messiah is right here in front of them promising rest to all who will come to them or come to him. Well, then Jesus moves on to a second scripture. Haven't you read in scripture, he asks, that the priests break the Sabbath every week, and yet they're innocent? This is because God's law, I think it was in Leviticus, commanded the priests to offer double sacrifices on the Sabbath. And there were several other things they needed to do concerned with the temple on the Sabbath. The priests had to work on the Sabbath, and so the law concerning the temple trumped the laws concerning the Sabbath in their case. And the Pharisees would have agreed with Jesus on this point, though they would have wondered what this had to do with Jesus. I mean, neither he nor his disciples were priests. Well, now Jesus lowers the boom. Verse 6, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. Wow, talk about a claim. Jesus is claiming to be greater than God's own holy dwelling place where God's presence was. All right, so let's step back and let's trace Jesus' argument thus far. The command to keep the Sabbath is important, Jesus is arguing, but the commands about the temple trump the Sabbath commands. And then going back to the David story, when someone was in need, David even trumped the temple commands. Do you see that? way that flows? And now one like David is here. One greater than the temple is here. So Jesus trumps the temple, which trumps the Sabbath. And so Jesus can conclude in verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus isn't really arguing theology with the Pharisees as much as he's pulling rank on them, big time. The king is here, not David, but the far greater son of David, the Messiah. The one who has come from God, as we saw a couple weeks ago, to reveal the Father's true will, to teach the Father's true ways, to teach us anew what true holiness looks like. Come to me, Jesus says, all you who are weary and heavenly burdened, and I will give you rest. Put aside the yoke of religion, the yoke of Torah, and take my yoke upon you. 
For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is our rest. Jesus is our Sabbath. Jesus is our King. When we follow Jesus and when we learn from Him, we keep God's commands as they were meant to be kept. And we learn how to live truly holy lives. No wonder the Pharisees go out a little later to plot Jesus' death. They're so angry, not because Jesus disagreed with them on some small point of Sabbath observance. They're angry because Jesus is claiming to be Israel's true king and authority. And he's outright rejecting their whole program of religion, which was their hope of salvation from Roman oppression. Rick Watts, one of my um, former professors at Regent College, explains the Pharisee situation this way. He says, imagine someone putting their whole life savings in bonds. And then you come along and you tell them that the bottom has fallen out of the bond market and their investments aren't worth the paper that they're printed on. That's what Jesus is telling the Pharisees here about their whole law-keeping holiness project, which was their hope of salvation. They're trying so hard to get everyone to be holy so that God can come and rescue his people. And then long before they've succeeded, contrary to all expectation, God in his grace just shows up anyway. Watts says something else that's really helpful at this point. He says that the problem with the Pharisees is that they have the wrong creation story. He's, um, he describes it this way. The, the, the Pharisees' creation story was as if the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are sitting up there together in heaven, and, and one of them says to the other two, you know, things are, are getting pretty boring. Let's create something. And uh, the Father says, great idea. What, what should we create? Oh, I know. Let's create some laws. Good idea, Father, the other two say. So, so they create the law. It, it's beautiful. It's a real work of art. Several hundred wonderfully, or wonderful commands which, which perfectly express God's will and God's character. And, and they're all nightly, nicely te- uh, typed out and they're, they're framed in gold and they're suspended up there in heaven to look at. And they think, wow, this is great. What a wonderful job we did. And they sit back and they enjoy their creation. But after 20 or 30 minutes, the Holy Spirit pipes up and timidly suggests, um, something's missing. What, they say? Yeah, something's missing. This log is getting kind of boring. And they say, well, yeah, we, you're right. But well, what's missing? And then the son says, I know, we need to create some people to keep all these rules. And they say, yeah, that's it. We need to make people to, create, to keep this law that we've created. That's the Pharisees' creation story, in effect. The law is holy. The law is made in God's image. And so the law must be kept at all costs to please God, even if people get destroyed in the process. But Jesus says, oh no, you've got the creation story all wrong. The law was not made for man. Man, I'm sorry, the law was made for man. Man was not made for the law. In other words, as Watts puts it, ultimately, it isn't rule-keeping and law-keeping that God is most concerned about. It's people 
keeping. It's people who are created in God's image, not the law. The law was introduced afterwards to keep people. People weren't created to keep the law. So should we keep the Sabbath? Yeah, of course we should. Jesus never suggests we shouldn't. Because God gave us, his people, the Sabbath as a gift to keep us. Think back to uh, when God gave Moses the, the Sabbath command at the time of the exodus from Egypt. You learn there that God isn't like the, the gods and the pharaohs of Egypt who enslaved Israel and made them work seven days a week. No, God is a king who has mercy on us and who cares for us and who gives us a day off, a day to be refreshed, a day of rest. And so God forbid that we ungratefully turn up our nose at that gift. In fact, throughout my life, whenever I've been driven to work all seven days of the week, either because I felt I needed the extra money or, or because there were projects at home or at work or at school, which I didn't think I could get done if I took a day off. Whenever I get like this, it's a reminder to me that I've begun serving other gods. Idols which want to enslave me instead of the true God who, who gives me the gift of a Sabbath to keep me. Okay, back to our story. The third scripture that Jesus points to to teach the Pharisees how they should understand God's law is Hosea 6.6, 6, where God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's what David understood when he fed himself and he fed his famished followers with the holy bread that, that was lawful only for the priests to eat. The purpose of the law is mercy. It's to keep people. And when obeying God's law, when, when being holy gets in the way of caring for people, then something is out of whack. If the Pharisees had understood this fundamental point, Jesus said, they would not have condemned the innocent, which is a fearful place for them to be. Well, this leads right into the second story, starting in verse 9, when the Sabbath controversy between Jesus and the Pharisees continues in the synagogue. A man's there with a withered hand. And when Jesus sees this man, he sees a man who, who can't work and can't support his family and, and so who suffers the disgrace and the humiliation of having to beg. When the Pharisees see the same man, all they see is a human exhibit which they can pin up to uh, use as evidence to trap Jesus. The Jewish laws of that time forbade healing on the Sabbath. The only exception was when someone's life was in danger. And even then, you, you could only help a person enough to keep them from dying. You couldn't help them so much that they got better on the Sabbath. So, for example, if, if, if you were bleeding profusely on the Sabbath, someone was allowed to put a bandage on your wound to stop the bleeding, but they weren't allowed to put any medicine on the bandage. So the Pharisees asked Jesus the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And the proper answer was, Yes, but only enough to save a life. Clearly, this man with the withered hand will live until sundown. You can just come back and heal him then. But instead of answering their question, Jesus replies with a question of his own. He says, 
If your sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath, won't you lift it out? And of course they would. Their Sabbath law permitted the saving of an animal from a pit. They had thought of everything. <laughs> Jesus continues, how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? And then the Lord of the Sabbath concludes, so then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he heals the man with the withered hand. Again, when rule keeping gets in the way of people keeping, something is badly wrong with our understanding of God's holiness and God's heart. And ironically, the Pharisees' rule keeping wouldn't allow a crippled man to be made well on the Sabbath, but it led them to go out and plot the death of a man on the Sabbath. It's easy to be hard on the Pharisees, but we need to take a look at our own conceptions of what's right and wrong and how we view other people. Jesus sums up, or Matthew sums up, Jesus has come. He's our king. He's greater than the Sabbath. He's greater than the temple. He's greater even than David. He offers us to take his yoke, an easy yoke, a light burden, rest. He invites us to learn from him the true way to keep God's law and to keep it holy. So what do we learn? Well, we learn first that Jesus did not come to give us a new set of rules to replace God's Old Testament rules. It's not just swap out the rules and we're still doing the rules thing. No, Jesus came to teach us how to better understand the heart of God's laws so as to fulfill what has been God's true intention all along. And there's so much that Jesus teaches us about this in his Gospels. You can just read the Sermon on the Mount for a start in Matthew 5 to 7. But in today's story, we will we'll live in it to that. We learn at least three things. First, we learn that mercy trumps sacrifice. We obey God, or I'm sorry, when obeying God and practicing your religion, when that comes into conflict with helping someone in need, then God would have you help the person in need. That's the story of the Good Samaritan, isn't it? Second, we learn that Scripture trumps religious tradition. Notice the Pharisees relied extensively on their traditions, all of those rules about what you could and you couldn't do on the Sabbath. But Jesus consistently brought them back to the Scriptures. Well, we have our religious traditions too. Several decades ago, they included man-made rules like don't smoke, don't dance, don't play cards, don't go to the movies. And just like the Pharisees, we had good reasons for making those rules, but they were man-made traditions nonetheless. So what are our religious traditions today which can get in the way of not caring for people? One of the best ways to ask this question, I think, is to ask, what annoys me about the people who are a generation younger or a generation older than I am? What unwritten rule or tradition do I have in my heart that they may be breaking? 
Is my man-made rule get in the way of my treating them the way God would want me to treat them as a people keeper? Third, Jesus teaches us that we're to draw moral principles from God's commands and to live by those principles. For example, twice in today's passage, Jesus reasons from the lesser to the greater in forming principles. If on the Sabbath we can pull a sheep out of a pit, the lesser, then how much more can we rescue a person, the greater? The principle is it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Another example, if the Sabbath is trumped by the temple, the lesser, how much more is the Sabbath trumped by Jesus, the greater? The principle is that rules admit exceptions when bigger priorities are at stake. I wish we had a discussion group this morning because we could really dig into this together, but instead I've prepared um, a handout on the table out in the foyer um, which gives some more examples and um, some scriptures that you can practice this on. Um, and it's, it's called More Thoughts About Developing Principles from Scripture. Because there's a lot here that we, we need to learn. It's hard work to learn to walk in God's ways. And, and we, we, with God's help and with one another's help, we, learn, we need to learn how to develop God's heart. But let me close now with the challenge for this morning. And I want to go back to uh, this topic of the Sabbath. And I want to introduce yet another life shape, the semicircle. The semicircle represents the swing of a pendulum, the rhythm of life that God has given us, a rhythm of work and rest. We rest from our work, and then refreshed, we work out of our rest. And if we let this rhythm get out of balance, our life gets burdened and weary. And that means we're not in step with our king, the Lord of the Sabbath. So in the Old Testament, God gave us this rhythm. He gave us daily rest every night. He gave us weekly rest each Sabbath. He gave us yearly rest, various holidays, which were times of rest. And we need to learn to develop a similar rhythm for our life today in this crazy modern world. And my challenge for each of us is to find ways to live out the semicircle. And thus to honor the Lord of the Sabbath who invites us to come to him so that he can give us rest.